Sam. And this is the Dead Club podcast. Dead Club is a project whereby we've been exploring our culture's relationship to death and dying and speaking to people who we think have an interesting perspective on that. Yeah, so this episode is an interview with Kevin Young. Um, and Kevin, well, the way that we came across him and we thought we wanted to talk to him about this podcast was that we were having these, we started having these conversations, some of which you may have heard already. We were talking quite broadly and in depth about death. But one thing that we felt like we weren't quite doing enough was really getting to the heart of talking about grief and learning a bit more about how to be better allies to people in grief, which was one of the reasons that we, I suppose, we started thinking about doing Dead Club as a project anyway. Um, So... I found this book, The Art of Losing, which is a, a, a poetry kind of compilation, if that's the word, um, for a book, that Kevin edited, which is about grief. It's poetry about grief and loss and death. Um, and so I kind of started investigating him, and then um, I, I approached him, and he was happy to talk. So... Kevin Young, um, a bit about who he is, he's the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and he works and lives in New York and he's also poetry editor of The New Yorker and he's a professor and and he's also a poet himself so he writes a lot of his own poetry books and he edits um, other bits and pieces of work as well. It was really amazing speaking to him. Uh, he's really, really interesting, really kind of open and warm person. Um, and he talks about, you know, we talked a bit about the death of his father, which was the event that prompted him to think about um, the art of losing and creating that book. Um, he talks about the way that grief changes over time. Um, Anyway, it's a really, really lovely chat. This is what happened when I spoke to Kevin Young. Thank you again for for joining me for this. Um, So the background is that I'm part of this band called Tongue, a British band. And we had an idea about um, 18 months ago, so 2018, to do something differently in terms of how we're going to put together our next record. And it came out of these conversations we were having um, that started really from sharing this book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, the Max Porter book. So we shared it between us and we had lots of conversations about it. And we started talking about death and the idea that um, it's something that British society certainly kind of has a, well, I mean, it's a bit of a generalisation, but there's a bit of a kind of a funny attitude around it. People don't really know how to behave around it. Um, And we felt like it would be really interesting to explore that subject um, and just explore it in a way where we start to have these conversations with people. So we start um, the exploration with a period of research and the research was conversations with people that, you know, 
friends, but also people we admire, people we're interested in, people who had written about death. Um, and what, so how I came across you was um, what we felt was we were having these conversations about death, but we weren't really facing the grief question properly. And um, that was like felt a bit problematic because it was really partly why we wanted to do this project anyway to feel like we were better equipped to um, support people who were in grief um, and to maybe have you know just be a bit better um, allies around it um, so I started kind of searching for stuff around grief and I found The Art of Losing which I ordered and um the hours book of hours as well um and so I thought I would get in touch with you and see if you wanted to have a chat with me about it so here we are and and so for the for the purpose of the podcast can you tell 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 me who you are and and what you do oh yeah my name is Kevin Young I'm the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture which is part of the New York Public Library and uh has been since 1925 um I'm also a poet uh, and the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. And, um, you know, a few years ago, um, I edited a book called The Art of Losing, Poems of Grief and Healing. And it was a book I, um, I don't know, I, you know, I, I say in that book, and it is still so painfully true to me that no one wants to write an elegy, you know, but in a way yeah. it was a book of elegies. It's, it's a... Uh, a thing that you're called to do. Um, and I really tried to argue in that book for, uh, and I hope the book, the poems it's themselves, which are, you know, from all sorts of people from Seamus Heaney to, uh, who was my old teacher to, uh, you know, people who I admired and read for years and who consoled me in my own grief, but it offered up what I call a poetry of necessity. Yeah. Tell me about that because sorry to sorry to interrupt you, but um, so Sam, who is the person in the band that writes the lyrics, and and he and I have shared I've shared the um, conversations with him about your um, books and your writing, and um, I actually sent him the whole introduction to the art of losing, and we talked about it a lot, and that was a line that he kind of pulled out like the poetry of necessity and can you talk a bit about what you mean by that yeah i mean i think necessity changes <laughs> necessarily yeah um but you know i do think necessity i think i was trying to get past uh you know some poetry world arguments which maybe aren't so interesting to other people about you know obscurity versus accessibility and kind of notions of of who the po poem is for and who comes to I really wanted to think about why we write poems, you know, and, and I think we're called to it. Uh, it's a vocation. It's something you yeah. don't have a choice in that much. Um, you even then when you feel like you do, you, you get surprised, you know. And, um, mm. you know, a case that's not about grief exactly, for instance, is I was writing poems about the blues and they were mostly love poems in a book called Jelly Roll. And then after my father died, in 2004, I, I was like, oh, uh, and I thought after I wrote these blues poems, oh, I'm done with the blues. You know, I, I mastered yeah. the blues, a crazy <laughs> notion, of course. Um, and so uh, the blues come and get you, you know, and they come for you. And the powerful thing for me about the blues is 
a little like elegies is though they can feel sad or on the surface appear sad there's by their very utterance they're issuing a kind of comfort um, even if it's just to yeah. say I can speak of this thing even if my speech is halting and damaged and grief laden and not exactly what I want to say which many a elegy starts with like how can yeah. I speak of you yeah. who's gone at the same time, just by doing that, uh, the blues and elegy and, and I think the poetry of necessity operates. It, it says what it's trying to say, but also says so much more by even the attempt. Uh, mm. and, and so to me, um, while I think, of course, the poems I put in the book are, are successful at that, they very often are, are admitting the ways that... Uh, they didn't want to have to say anything or they they wished it was otherwise i mean who wouldn't and yeah, i think that's sure. part one of the powerful things about an elegy specifically which is very is of course intimately related to grief but different than grief and so i wanted mm -hmm. in the book to help people understand you know there's been much made of the phases of grief but some aspects of the poetry of grief and what it does and sometimes it's raw and sometimes it's re reflective and um you know, we were talking at first about sort of this moment of quarantine and COVID-19 and what to make of it. And I do think there's that almost corollary to grief. You were saying, you know, it's up and down at first and you, you don't know where you are and you're trying to adjust. And then it's not so much it goes away. It doesn't or hasn't yet in COVID-19's case. But in terms of grief, it never goes away. But there is a kind of plateau you reach. And that's your terms. I think that's a great uh way of thinking of it or maybe yeah. we both came up with that i don't remember <laughs> you said plateau i said i just said flat actually slightly less <laughs> well, these are diff different but the same you know i mean i, I think yeah. maybe we need both those words because to me um uh, a case in point this year i um i just had a day that was just you know in the midst of of all this it was just awful i mean you know feeling sort of uh panicky but also you know down and just like all the kind of range of emotions and I was like I don't know what's going on with me you know, stomach in an uproar you know everything you can think yeah. and literally it was only a few days later I realized that was the anniversary of my father's death wow this is 16 years later and wow. my body you know knew better than I did yeah and I think there's there's part of that's the part of grief that I think poetry better than maybe other art forms, maybe music uh, does this too, uh, can, can capture is the body nature mm. of grief. And I think we forget that at our peril, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think that um, something about Max's book kind of speaks to that as well. Like it, it sort of touches on all those aspects, the, the, the um, you know, the rawness, um, the sentimental, the anger, um, the quiet, but also like the ridiculousness, the body, bodily stuff, you know, that I think that people are kind of really afraid to go there. Um, especially, I suppose, when one hasn't experienced their own, like what you consider your own kind of very personal grief, I think. Um, but you don't have a choice once grief hits. I mean, because... Yeah quite literally chemically you you know your immune system is down you know it's a physical process uh and i think there were things that used to be 
designed to uh, in in kind of mourning, which I would call the sort of formal traditional public part of grieving, that seemed to have gone. And sometimes I, I I think I say this in the introduction, and certainly I felt it, is I wish we still had you know black armbands sometimes, and yeah. we could let people know, you know, I'm I'm grieving, I'm in this moment of mourning, you know, which had its formal qualities that I think sometimes were were. Uh, bad uh, or at least restrictive or, or felt not to people authentic in some way but at the same time they, they provided a kind of armor um, yeah you know and sometimes armor is what you need because you know the ups and downs and 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 stuff like that uh, you're gonna go through those uh, one mm-hmm. hopes or one hoping is not the right word one uh, expects and and certainly should give oneself room to do. But I, I also yeah. think you need, I sometimes wish like, you're being a little mean to me right now, person who I don't know. And it, maybe <laughs> if you knew that I had this human uh, experience uh, that yeah. we all are going to experience, that you might just be 2% nicer. Um, and yeah. and I, I uh, in my own poetry, you know, uh, write a little bit or a lot about those moments of, let's call them grace, when someone was able to reach across the divide and sort of just be kind to you either for no reason or for knowing uh why you were grieving or why you were going through what you were going through and that's such a small uh but huge thing in those moments i'd like to ask you about that um you're you're talking a a lot about a lot of stuff that i've written down to ask you but i think as you've just come to that it's really interesting to me um sam interviewed a friend of his whose um husband had uh, passed away in kind of very unfortunate circumstances, leaving an, a young ch- her with a young child. And it was, you know, these f- moments that had really stayed with her, like the, the moments which where she felt that people had behaved badly around her grief and the moments that people had really behaved with real pure kindness. And I wanted to ask you about that, about like obviously not naming and shaming people, but just if there's any moments that you can think of where you felt like you wish something had been done in a different way or where something had been done really well around you sure I mean I ended up writing poems about them so I remember them vividly you know one Mm. as a poet and maybe you have this uh as a musician like the thing you make into a piece of art you remember almost more but the question is would you uh, you made it into a piece of art because it was so sticking with you of course but uh, I have a poem called Charity, and in that poem, uh, I just became obsessed uh, with trying to get my dad's, you know, like final things from the dry cleaner. Sort of, you know, he's never going to wear them. But it yeah. seemed like I, I was thinking of it later. It's almost like Osiris or something, trying to put all these pieces of him together. And I was going around, like, looking and trying to, you know, like, sort which these tickets went to which of the local places and I went to one and the poem tells us better than I can and this gentleman just as soon as I drove up and said oh I'm looking for it he just came and gave me this dry cleaning Mm -hmm. and I was trying to pay him and he refused and the owner was there and said oh no no I joked with your father all the time and it was like these two kindnesses and yeah the man who gave it to me was black as my father and I you know and so that also was sort of this this extra layer of, of just cultural understanding. And I felt yeah. seen and, and cried, you know, like on my, on my way home. And 
you know, the point of the poem, too, and, uh, you know, not to give away, it's not like the poem has a spoiler alert, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, as, you know, I did all that to give away his clothes, you know, it wasn't to, yeah. uh, but I just wanted him to be together for once, and so that was this, for me, important kindness, and I think we, we you know, I'll never forget it, and it, it, I needed it more than you would have thought. At the same time, I have another poem about um, called Codicil, uh, which of course is you know an addition to a will, which is really an angry poem, and I think you have to let yourself have those um, mm. about you know the the kind of uh, they're not telemarketers, but people who are on the phone trying customer service trying to help you negotiate, and they're supposed to be sort of grief technicians. I I don't even remember the technical term for them, but. <laughs> They were so horrible, uh, and the idea is horrible, A, and B, they were bad at their jobs, and, you know, every time you call, you get a different kind of fake sympathy and then no help, uh, and that poem, I think, says it better than I can again, but mm. by the end, you know, someone <laughs> calls and um, pretends they've spoken to him, which was a kind of telemarketing trick, and they said, oh, uh, Paul, uh, I, I just wanted to get back to you about the cruise, they said, he'd been dead like a couple years. And I, wow. you know, I call back and as I say in the poem, like I said, uh, if they ever call back, I'd kill them and not with kindness, as does the <laughs> phone, you know. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of fury, I think, was important. And, you know, I was hardly kidding that, you know, if, if this person persisted in this kind of notion that they spoke to him, which, of course, is all you want, you know, I, I think yeah. you also want that and I you know there's parts of the tradition I come from from the American South where you might have a dream or a vision and, and interact with a, a loved one and I kept waiting for that in some way and yeah. that never really happened and so that that idea that someone would call up and act like they had that experience uh, talking to him was just infuriating all the more um, and you know I, I think there's also a weird way in which and this goes to the blues and to elegy is there's can be a odd absurd you know, gallows humor um, around these yeah. things. And, and so I really wanted to explore that um, and and think about that. And there were moments I remember of thinking of taking out some of those, you know, strange uh, moments of levity that you create or find or absurdity. And I, I think I was really happy that in the end I decided to leave those in because it's such a part of the experience, even in the face of it, of you know horrible loss yeah was there anything about the experience I suppose I mean I don't know if this is a great question or not but that the experience of grief that surprised you I I suppose you know I don't really know what one expects from it but was there anything that that surprised you I think that's a great question I mean I think the totality of it uh, might surprise mm the the person I was the day after I, I don't know you know I think I had had griefs before my father and I had lost friends um some of whom I wrote about and you know that has its own sorrow when someone quite young but what was yeah. strange for me my father was only 61 and mm -hmm. um I you know when you're younger that seems old when you're you know growing older you realize that is very young you know that's not far from what how old I am now I mean somewhat far but um you know I can imagine it more than I can I'm closer to it than I am 
not. And um, all these years later, that strikes me more and more. Um, I think I wouldn't have thought about how much more he had left. And he died very suddenly in an accident. So it, was, it wasn't like, um, you know, when you fill out those forms and you say when you're, you know, an official form about health or something, it doesn't tell me anything except for how much more he could have lived and done yeah. and who, who he could have been. Um, and I think that, as well for my friend Philippe Wamba, who died quite young at 31, um, you know, you think about that, like what was left. And then you have, I think, <clears throat> or can have, I wouldn't call it survivor's guilt, but I, I think you suddenly have this weird urgency sometimes. And especially mm -hmm. if you're a writer, uh, you might think, gee, I got to, you know, uh, the darkness uh, grows deeper, you know, and so you think about it a lot. Um, so I don't know if that was a surprise, um, but it, it definitely uh, changed me. Um, so, you know, and I think you change in unexpected ways. Uh, and I think that's maybe it's more there's the things that you know I found surprising but I think it's important in general when I step back to think that grief is is full with those surprise things and yeah. you know how quickly you know and how complete it was is one thing as I said but there's also a way that um I you know I, I think I say in one point like um I might have to look it up to get the quote right, but something like, you know, what, like forgiving even the, the idea of needing to forgive. Like there was this, there was no, like, uh, I felt instantly like there was no quarrel or anything that we had ever had that I should ever even think about again. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and that was, I would felt blessed in that because I know sometimes, especially when someone goes quite suddenly, there's things left unsaid. Uh, and, you know, um, fathers and sons don't always see eye to eye and um, sure. you know, that's part of it. But I also felt like we had worked hard uh, in our different ways to to see each other and, and speak the same language. And, you know, we laughed uh, last time I saw him, we laughed and laughed. So that was really uh, or, or spoke to him, which was just a week before. That was a, a blessing then. That's amazing. And had your relationship always been like that? Or had you kind of had it taken a while to get there? I mean, my father was a unique person and, and all fathers are, I suppose, <laughs> all people. But, um, you know, he I, you don't meet many people who had this experience of growing up, you know, in his case, in the segregated South and, you know, becoming one of the first people in his family to go to college, uh, much less finish, you know, schooling high school um you know in louisiana and then going all the way to becoming a physician and a, a surgeon you know and so mm -hmm. he had this kind of perspective that you don't always see except for in someone like my mother who grew up in similar circumstances and went on to get uh, a phd in chemistry you know which is i, th I think equally as wow. exciting and it was just kind of the air you breathed uh, growing up um these science parents who yielded this strange uh poet kid you know <laughs> i was just about to say that were they trying to push you in the science direction uh they were very good at uh letting me <laughs> uh do my little stories and draw my little cartoons or comics or whatever <laughs> but um you know i i think that at the same time that uh was quite a journey and um 
you know, it meant that he, I think, was always looking for ways to express that. Uh, and I think he did in his own way. And I think that's, he certainly taught me to love music of all kinds and, and to, you know, I have all his records and when I play mm -hmm. The Harder They Come, uh, his vinyl from, you know, when I was a kid that I think I heard two million times, you know, it sounds still great uh, on the same vinyl. Um, I, you know, nothing pleases me more. And so, you know, I, I feel like, again, you have these connections and there's things that you start to, you know, my family, there weren't like, always some specific thing you got handed down but he handed down to me so much and i think mm. um those those things are the things i treasure that's so lovely i was going to ask you um about other kind of art mediums that speak to you in a way that poetry does like you know you just talked about music like do you think music can kind of reach these places that that poetry does as well when it comes to grief or I suppose you know we're talking about grief but I suppose other kind of deep feelings I mean let's stick with grief I think absolutely yes you know mm -hmm. um I think poetry and music aren't so disconnected the lyric mm -hmm. impulse uh, courses through both and of course um in the western tradition the lyric is the poem to accompany the lyre you know and um, the musical instrument and I think that that quality is shared um, but I also think you know quite specifically music was often the thing that got me through you know uh, certainly mm -hmm. when my friend Philippe died um, I just the only thing I listened to was lots of Bob Marley um, which also happened to be music that I went to his funeral in Tanzania and um, in Dar es Salaam, and um, that's the thing we sang all night, you know, and you had people from, I think, five continents there, um, wow. you know, who all knew Bob Marley songs, um, and this yeah. is before, you know, iPods or, you know, like, or like, I too, you couldn't download uh, all of that, you had to carry it around with you, and someone had a guitar, and someone started singing, and we just sang songs we knew, and folk songs, and, and things like that all night, and it got us through, and um, so absolutely, I think music uh, is soothing. It, it can express things you can't say um, because, of yeah. course, it has built into it, um, you know, wordlessness. Um, and uh, I think sometimes wordlessness is a, is a state that poetry aspires to. I also think that um, the thing I love, for instance, about the blues is... Uh, is that the blues are good time music. I mean, people think of them as somehow sorrowful. They're meant to be, you know, dan dance music. They're the basis of uh, most, if not all, of our music today in that way. Um, but what they teach you is that um, a song that sounds sad can actually be funny and happy. Uh, 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 the music can be different than the message of the poem. Uh, what I say in uh, an anthology of blues poems is the form of the blues fights the feeling of the blues. And so yeah. you always have that weird tension. Sometimes it sounds incredibly mournful, but the person's laughing, you know, yeah. uh, while singing. Or, uh, you know, there's always this kind of tension. And foreground, background, these things flip and flop around. And, you know, that descends through jazz and other uh, art forms that originate in African-American culture and then spread across the world something like hip-hop 
you know, which I think is so powerful in this particular moment. I, I started listening to a lot of 90s hip hop again <laughs> in the midst of unrest and sort of global yeah. uh, protest. And I, I see that kind of tension all the time. Like the people will be singing or rapping rather in a kind of cool way. And then the music will be very hot uh, and, and very uh, loud. And, you know, but the, the, the flow will be different. And there's always that interesting tension. And I think music taught me that you can try to create that uh, in a poem, um, that a poem should be able to represent those different sides of a experience or feeling. And, mm. um, you know, what Ralph Ellison called fingering the jagged grain, uh, which is what how he described the blues, the action of the blues, um, by keeping a, a, a memory that's, you know, sorrowful, alive in a weird way worrying it uh, but also getting past it and I think naming pain is one of the things that poetry can do and I learned mm. that in part from the blues and uh, the music that you know helped me through hard times. I just want to ask you a bit about putting the book together and compiling the poems and where do you even begin doing something like that I mean how does what is the process and I mean, literally, I'm quite interested in, like, the permissions and the admin and, like, how do you do that? How do you do that? Uh, well, permissions are probably the hardest thing in any anthology, and especially with poetry because, you know, uh, if you're doing, say, prose, theoretically, you can write to one publisher, they give you or don't give you permission, and that's it. But a, a poem might, you know, you might have to go five or six different steps that appeared in this mm -hmm. magazine, maybe the magazine has, you know things that aren't worth uh, going into, except to say that they're uh, very detailed. And, um, you know, I definitely at different times have sworn off uh, anthologies for that very reason. But um, at the same time, I think what an anthology can do in general, and I hope Art of Losing does, is it can kind of start you on this journey um, and show you the range of responses, in this case, to grief. Um, and it really took shape after I'd written a lot of my grief poems. Um, so it wasn't, in a weird way, it was kind of after the fact. And um, it was really a way of thinking about what got me through, but also yeah. what, uh, in some cases, got other people through. Um, and and how there were different sides to it. And, and you know, I, I think my agent and I were talking about the idea and then very quickly it became a full-blown thing i mean i don't uh, faster than i think he would have even thought and i tend to work that way like you know i'll be watching a lot of tv and uh people around me are like gosh she's just watching a lot of tv and then one day <laughs> the, the thing you know it's like oh i wrote this you know prospectus for uh and, and i don't know how fully formed the the sections were um, but that was really important to me, uh, and I tend to see things in that kind of architecture way that I like to see sort of where things are going. Now, they may move around a lot, uh, but in a way, you kind of end up treating it, at least I do, like my own work uh, in trying to discover what the inner structure of the thing is. I really want to think about the different moments, you know, not strictly according to uh, Kubler-Ross, uh, Five Stages of Grief, which of course is a book not about the gr grieving, but how people experience their own death. You know, that's what we kind of tend to forget. But when you go yeah. back and read that book, that's what uh, 
the doctor was writing about it. And I, I think that's really important um, to say that, that those things were almost so similar, you know, like one yeah. experiencing one's own death, the anger and the negotiation, all these things was very similar uh, and has translated for people into their experience of uh, having someone they love die. And, and for me, I, in poems, I didn't want to replicate that exactly, but I did want to think about moving from the immediate feelings to later feelings that might even lead to something like redemption. Mm. So that structure uh, came pretty quick. Uh, and certainly there were keystone poems throughout that I, I knew were going to go in different places. And part of the pleasure of doing anthology is discovering new voices, um, yeah. some new in the poetry writing world, but some just new to you. And so between those is how I ended up structuring it. And do people kind of like, once they know that you're working on this, start sending stuff to you or are you just in the library kind of searching? I'm kind of a library archive kind of guy. Um, of course, I love that kind of discovery and I get a lot of that, of course, in The New Yorker. Um, uh, but I, I find that I can, I find that I, there's there's so much there that I, and I can get more done if I'm like looking and looking. Um, doesn't mean things don't come across, but I tend to it tends to go live more toward the end of the process than toward the beginning. So one thing that you you wrote in the introduction to the um, the anthology compilation, I'm talking in music terms. You said even healing hurts, and I I found that line in a poem of yours as well, and I'm sort of interested in that. If you could talk a bit more about that. Yes, you're reading closely. Uh, <laughs> my secret Sorry. is out that I stole from myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's in a poem called Ruth, uh, which um, I became really obsessed with uh, the, you know, there's all these words that we only use like as their opposites <laughs> and like ruthless. We, we use that word a lot, but we don't say root, someone has Ruth a lot. I just love that idea and so I was trying to write about that but I was also trying to write about this very physical thing you know which of course healing is is both uh, the subtitle of art of losing and also uh, a physical act so it's both physical and mental uh, I think I mean it in both those ways that you know it's a little like a scar that itches or or um, just that process of, of building back bone and muscle and heart and hope you know that can really hurt and mm. there even can be a weird way in which letting go a little bit can be really painful you know yes. because there's something intimate and tender about grief uh and and i think you know letting go is such a overdone term so i, I don't mean to say people should do that um <laughs> You know, this idea of, what is it, closure? That's a horrible uh, idea, I think, that sometimes gets thrown around. Um, it's not that it's horrible. It's just that it isn't as simple as that word implies. Sure. And it yeah. isn't one act. Like, you know, I did this thing and then I felt closure. And it's like, well, then what would you do the next day? Um, and for me, um, it's all a process. Um, and it's more, I think it's more useful to say it, grief changes you know mm. and healing you know your body heals itself whether you wish to or not um and and that that kind of pain of that 
And some of that realization even can be painful. Like, oh, I feel differently. You know, like I was yeah. saying to you, I, it passed me by this anniversary. And I remember even the lead up to the year, I remember just girding myself and just being like, oh, it's going to be so terrible. And that day wasn't terrible. The thinking about it was terrible. Yes. Uh, and, and the buildup, the day itself, I, I think I had managed to forgive myself however I mm. might feel. And sometimes we don't. You know, sometimes we spend a lot of time feeling you should feel better or different than you do or yeah. feeling, you know, crappy. And then you start to feel, quote, better. And then you look back and you say, well, and suddenly I feel worse and I'm going backwards. And of course, you're in the sea and sometimes uh, a wave hits you and sometimes there's it's a little warmer and sometimes... Uh, you know, you get a little water in your eyes and your mouth and, you know, you don't feel like you're drowning, um, but you're floating through it. And yeah. you, know, you have to be a bit more generous to yourself than we sometimes are. And, you know, at the same time, it can be strange to be like, oh, I didn't realize. And maybe I would have had a less strange experience of this day had I realized that that's what the day was. So yeah. even that healing part of it that I you know, in some ways, um, didn't have to build my year around that, um, also means that, you know, you, you miss a little something. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I, I'd like to ask you a bit more about, um, kind of behavior around grief and, um, there's, and this is something that Sam and I were talking about, like the idea of people, like when somebody dies, there tends to be a habit certainly in British culture about sharing sort of hope and platitudes and that kind of sentiment around the person or you're going to feel better or do you know what I mean and um I just wonder what you think about that and <clears throat> you know things that somebody would say like this will pass and you're going to feel better or whatever like is it ever you know does that ever is is that ever the right thing to say um I think being a bit more personal is often more received in the manner in which it's meant. Because I think yeah. people are trying to say, you know, I see you in your grief and I wish I could make it go faster for you or go mm. away, um, which is a kind of noble uh, wish. I think people, generally speaking, have good intentions. But, you know, I think the best thing sometimes you can say is just like, I'm really sorry. For your loss you know yeah. and people then usually can tell you what they need sometimes what they want is not to talk about it a lot and they want to just pre not pretend but return a little bit to the you know uh, have a beer with you if that's what you used to do and then mm -hmm. sometimes you know not having too many but you know um, <laughs> sometimes a little bit of time they can sort of say something that they weren't able to say an hour before we don't have again poems admit this we don't always have a language for it you know mm. and so um I know those those times you know I think the ones that I like less are, are things like um you know everything happens for a reason or somehow there's some purpose for this yeah. you know it's like well cancer doesn't feel like that if, if that's what no. happened to your loved one you know and yeah. um so I, I think that we can do better just to be ourselves and also be a bit, you know, more straight with people. 
Um, but it's hard to know what to say. And sometimes people, you know, and sort of where I come from, some of what you say is through like cooking or, or food mm. or, you know, people you obviously traditionally send flowers. And, and sometimes that can be just as powerful um, a token. You know, I think there's more to be said than that. But, you know, sometimes that can start that speech. I remember when my grandfather died a long time ago now, um, coming back and just being amazed that people were who I didn't know were cooking for us all, mm. you know, um, folks in the community. Uh, and that was just amazing to me. How'd they know? You know, like I told my somewhat younger self. Um, and mm. at the same time, now looking back, of course, you know, where I come from, there's that tradition that they call the repast or the meal after the funeral, not a unique tradition but i think unique in its import um if you don't have that uh that would be quite strange and quite much more upsetting than almost anything else i can think and that is is a a mission of sustenance and and need and and love and and kind of care and Mm. it's also quite practical which is as a grieving person sometimes you just forget to eat you know you forget yeah uh that you have to continue uh, in that way and not having to worry about that uh, can be a real blessing. And, you know, you're talking about words and I hate to prescribe words, but sometimes uh, I can see why people might have a bad reaction to, you know, like you said, platitudes. Mm. Well, leads me on to a question that we're kind of asking everybody that we speak to, which is, and we have touched on this a little bit already, um, but, um, one thing that you think that your culture and by that, whatever, however you identify your culture to be does well in relation to grief and one thing that it does badly or could do better. Well, I mean, I think I touched on it. Uh, like you said, I, I think that there's this wonderful way in which, um, there is this, uh, feeding and sustenance and admission that there is this, comfort and comfort food that um, is important for the living as well as a kind of offering for the dead. So I think that combines quite beautifully in the black and black Southern and Southern traditions I'm in. Um, But I also think that, uh, you know, everyone I think suffers from not knowing exactly what to say or, or trying to make sense out of, out of it maybe even too soon, um, putting it in a neat box. Uh, I think everyone can kind of do that in our modern world. I, I'm painfully aware right now, though, that we're in this time of, of great global grief. You know, we've lost uh, stateside so many people. People uh, I work with and know have either had COVID or loved ones that have, or people have lost people. And, and it's, of course... In the states, uh, there's a disparity in who is experiencing this black and brown people, especially. Mm. And so, you know, it all feels not enough and, and hasty. And um, sorry, my cat has just entered, shouting really loudly. <laughs> he always does this. Sorry. If you're gonna get past get grief, get you a pet too. That's not a bad yeah. idea. Like a dog will really. You know, they they uh, they know and can sort of uh, nudge you in good ways. 
you know, I, I think that it's just a, a time when I think we're going to be reckoning with the losses for a while. Yeah. Both literally and emotionally. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that's everything. It's been so interesting and so lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much. I really mean that. But I'm really glad we got to talk. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. Great to get to know you, and I hope we can see each other sometime, you know, in the flesh. Yeah. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Hi, this is Sam from Tongue, and I've been asked to say a few words about something that's personal to me about this project, um, and I wanted to talk about a question that somebody asked me whilst we were doing the research for Dead Club. And that question was, what gives us the right to talk about this subject? Now I think that's a great question because I think maybe quite a few people will wonder that as they listen to the record or you know engage with the podcasts. So I think the first thing to say is we really don't see ourselves as experts in this in this subject at all. We, we really this is something that we're fairly ignorant about and that's why we want to explore it more um, and I feel like the more I learn about the subject in general the more I realise there, there is to learn and that's partly I think because I've very rarely spoken about this with my friends and family it's really not part of our culture to discuss this openly I went to a I went to a death cafe which is just like it sounds it's a, it's a cafe organized for people to go and talk about death and I found that you know there were there were six people on my table and including a facilitator and with the gentlest little bit of facilitation you know the gentlest prompts to get us talking we, very quickly the six of us were talking really openly about very difficult subjects and it felt really liberating to be able to do that and it, in some ways it was helpful because I could talk about the fact that I'm not sure how to bring up the, the subject of palliative care with my parents and I could talk about the fact that when I'm when a friend is grieving I often feel a lot of fear around how do I what do I say what how do I help them how do I support them and so that was that was helpful but also it just felt good to be able to talk about issues that are important to me and that our culture doesn't make it very easy to talk about and I think a lot of people must feel that way so what gives us the right to talk about this subject well nothing nothing especially does give us a special right to talk about it I just think it's that we all all of us have the right to talk about this subject to learn more about it and to learn more about how we can support ourselves and others better so yeah that's what I think thanks so much for listening still to come this series are interviews with AC Grayling Catherine Mannix Alanda Button and Speech to Bell and if you missed them we spoke to Max Porter Darren Brown and Dame Sue Black in earlier episodes don't forget to subscribe to the Dead Club podcast on Apple, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.